What's up, hardcore humans? Welcome to the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Today, we are talking with musician, podcaster, and activist, Rain Phoenix. Rain is the founder of Launch Left, a creative space for artists, which includes, among other things, a record label and a podcast. The goal of Launch Left is to empower creative artists by providing them a platform and opportunity to shine. Rain is also a musician, and her 2019 album River was inspired by the tragic death of her brother River Phoenix in 1993. And that brings us to one of the topics I talked about with Rain in our conversation, the universality of loss. Unfortunately, we all have experienced or will experience loss at some point in our lives. This loss can manifest in different ways. It can be the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job or career goal, or the loss of our physical or mental health. In fact, loss is such a certainty that it is crucial that we have an understanding of how we conceptualize and how we cope with it. And yet, as common as loss is, it can often be something of a taboo topic. We are allowed to talk about our loss for a time. We are allowed to grieve for a time. But after that, we are expected to just move on and get over it. But that is often not how loss works. Our past is not just our past. It informs our lives as we move forward. And a loss, even if it was from decades ago, can still actively inform how we think, feel, and what we do in the world. And one of the things that is so powerful about Rain's approach to loss is that she's saying it's okay if we struggle as we try to cope with it. And Rain's approach to loss and the universality of loss is part of a much larger concept that she discussed with me, which is the concept of what Rain calls militant love. Now, in the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program, we want you to apply principles of humanistic psychology to your life so you can find your purpose, work hard to achieve it, and build a community around you who will support your most authentic and purpose-driven life. And one of the most important humanistic principles is the notion of unconditional positive regard. It's that idea that all human beings deserve to be treated with kindness, respect, and dignity. And Rain's concept of militant love takes that notion even a bit further. Now, the term militant is often used in a negative way, implying that someone is violent. But as Rain describes it, it means that in order to really show our humanity, we need to be committed to loving ourselves and to loving others. And maybe some may view that as militant in that it's confrontational and extreme. But considering how easily we can be unloving to ourselves and others, and how confrontational and extreme we can be at times by being unkind, maybe it's okay that we get a little bit more extreme and confrontational in how we love ourselves and others. And for many people, when we find our purpose in life, it is because we love something so much that we want to put our heart and soul in it, the way Rain explains how she approaches militant love. So let's hear what Rain has to say. So, Rain, welcome to the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Hello, Dr. Mike. So nice to be here. It seems like only a few minutes ago we were talking on your podcast. <laughs> it does. How strange time is. <laughs> so, let's get right into it. One of the things that you have been very outspoken about, and I think is, is, a, is a wonderful concept, even though it comes from a painful place, is the universality of loss. I think that so many people, when they experience loss, feel at that moment in time isolated, alone, like they're really the only one who understands what they're feeling. And in, a, and in, in some sense, it's true because everybody's loss is kind of unique, but 
you have really talked about trying to make people feel less alone in their loss. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think from my own personal experience, the more that I connected to my own loss and grief, the more Mm. that I connected to it was based on the fact that I included that of others and thinking like, wow, if this is, feels this way for me, imagine what it feels like for that person who's lost two people in a row or the, the more that I include others in the process of grief and loss, the more that I actually didn't feel alone. And the more that I realized that, wow, we're all connected through this thing that we don't really talk about very much in Western culture and that we're all afraid to even say out loud for fear that somehow it's going to kill the people we love just to talk about it, right? That through the process of kind of just having more awareness for the loss that others experience, I was able to really touch into my own and also feel comforted in a I know that's a strange word to say, a term to use right now, but it didn't make me feel less alone to know that, you know, I truly wasn't, that we all will and either have or will experience loss in our lifetime. And that that was really important for me to make that connection because my heart immediately felt softer and more inclusive toward others. And I didn't feel so siloed and alone. You know, and I really appreciate you sharing that journey, but I want to take it back to the beginning before you embarked on that. Because one of the things that is so difficult for people is that oftentimes people and relationships feel very fragile. And I think that when someone's experienced the loss, one of the things that they're worried about is that they don't want to say something or, you know, unleash their grief in a way that might be alienating to people. And they also are a little bit sensitive to the fact that people tend to say unintentionally things that are, that are potentially damaging. And that leads to that, that isolation, that combination. I'm just kind of curious if you ever felt that way, you ever thought to yourself, like, if I shared the depths of my grief, it'll alienate people and, and, and people, even well-intentioned people, coming to you and saying things that you're just like, oh, this is just making me feel worse, not better. No, to be honest, it's in hindsight that I've really been able to even look at it and process it properly. I'm an incredibly private person, and I actually was very happy if people felt awkward and didn't say anything to me. And for many years, I just didn't, I don't enjoy that part of it. I'm not, I wasn't looking for grieving community anytime that I've had loss. It is a very private thing, right? But in a vast and aspirational way, when I connected it to thinking about over lifetimes, how many people have lost the people closest to them and people experiencing war and famine and systemic racism and sexism and being beat up for being who they are and all these, these losses, these relationship losses, all of it, that in that kind of, in a more aspirational, connected to all of it way, it really helped me process, right? But I've always been someone who's like in, you know, had my own sort of way of processing. And I understand what your question is, which is basically like, and people all the time say, I don't know how to respond to death and how to be there for the people that have lost someone. I feel like everything I say is inappropriate and, you know, and I do understand 
that question. And I will say from my own, just the experience of loss in itself is helpful to those who haven't yet lost and suddenly do. Being one of those people who can just say, I've been there if, and I'm sorry. And if there's anything like I'm right here, but I know that it's very complex. And I know that one day you don't want to talk to anyone. And the next day you wish everyone was there by your side or whatever. So that knowledge of the experience and that open heartedness is what I think has actually been incredibly helpful to me, to me and to friends and others who've lost, you know, because of just an awareness and a being there without trying to run to the rescue or, you know, I think that can be jarring and depending on the person like me, for instance, who is very private and didn't really want a lot of fanfare, you know, uh, it's it's important to try to know who the person is and what their version of grieving is. And part of that is just holding space for people, just saying, I recognize that this is an extreme discomfort and sadness and I'm here. Whatever that looks like for you, I'm here. Um, that's hard to do because we all think we know what's up, you know. And even if we don't, we, we may misstep because we're trying to do the best we can and we're doing it on account of what we think is best and not assessing the situation. It takes a lot of, I would say, patience and courage just to sort of not respond knee-jerk around grief and loss because everyone processes it differently and there is no expertise, I believe. It's about time in, you know, and that's my experience. Yeah, and that that concept that there's no expertise, you know, that that is something that I really try to say to people and and don't get me wrong. I think that people who offer up their, their perspective, whether it's through science or clinical experience or personal experience, I think, I think that's all wonderful as potentially informative, but, but as you're saying, if, if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, I think that one of the most damaging things that can happen to a person is to be under the impression that there's a specific way that they have to grieve. And if they deviate from that, it's somehow, quote unquote, abnormal because loss is difficult enough already. And you don't want to superimpose some kind of arbitrary mechanical system around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, part of why, you know, that song that I wrote, Time is the Killer, was kind of about that nonlinear grief and how you cannot... uh, you cannot silo it. You cannot put it in, in sections of your life and say, and this year I grieved this properly until this time. And then I was back at work and, and none of that. Like for me, it was a 25 year, you know, experience that culminated closer later, much later. And at the 25 year mark, much more than previously, I was unable to articulate those feelings. You know, I was grieving, but I didn't have this sort of, breadth of maturity and age to look at it and experience it from the depth of like an adult brain. Um, And so that was really important that I, that I let myself find that place over time and didn't push like, I can't believe I'm not here yet, you know? Yeah. And, and tell me if I'm quoting this right, but this was one of my favorite quotes of all time. The wild animal of grief does not choose a finite amount of time to process it. That was like, is, is that, did, was that a 
Is that an accurate yeah. quote? Yeah. Oh, man. That was like one of those when you listen to a song and you're kind of like, oh, I wish I had written that lyric. I was like, ah, oh, how come I didn't say that quote? That was so awesome. <laughs> and I, I think that that it's exactly, it's the, it's the wild animal of grief. It is not to be tamed. Yeah. And I think that unless you understand that it is a wild animal, you're, you're right from the beginning missing the point, you know? Um, and you're saying like, oh, I didn't have a certain adult brain or the adult wisdom, but I, I kind of feel like just the fact that you had any sense early on that you needed privacy and you needed space and you weren't sure what you were dealing with is the, is, is the wisdom there. You know what I mean? Because so many of us, like you say, like you in, in the, you know, in the song, you know, trying to be so brave, we're trying to show like we understand so much, like we've got it all figured out. And just to be able to say, I have no idea. And that's okay. I can sit with having no idea is, is such a powerful tool that can be applied to almost any situation, but particularly has to be applied to grief. Yeah, that's funny. My sister Liberty always says, we know nothing. And I totally do feel that. I, I think the older I get, the more I, I I prescribe to that, you know, that we really, everything is still a mystery. And it's about coming open hearted to everything that we face with curiosity and with concern um, for others and how their lives might be affected by the things that we do and how their own grief is important to, you know, just an open heartedness and a total mystery. The rest being a total mystery has been much more helpful to me as, uh, as a person than thinking I know what's up or trying to get to a goal or fix myself or get over this hump or any of those things that are kind of prescriptive in our culture that like, you know, past this point, you should be okay. Or, you know, I finally like, and like you said, uh, and on the big up episode you were just on, you said something like, you know, artists tend to do that, like deviate from what's prescribed and find their way in a much more authentic or certainly um, throw caution to the wind, you know, courageous way, I would like to say. Um, but it's it's just like anything else. I mean, I do think we're all creatives too, because I do think that we um, every day we're creating our own reality. So I count every single person as an artist when I speak like that. So we all have that capacity, just those that are called artists and make music and film and paintings. And, you know, they're, uh, they're oh, oh, put that flag down. Like, this is what I'm doing. I'm not going to follow the cultural mores per se. I'm going to do it, forge my own, you know. But I think we all have that ability to sort of decide um, how we're going to greet each day, how our reality is going to be created. And, and so much of it is, is what we do in our minds, right? And what we say to ourselves and what we repeat. And something I'm just super fond of is when I, the more that I include others, even while I'm focused on something that is very much a piece I'm doing or a song I'm writing or, the more that I include the wishes for a joyful experience for others and, and wanting others to feel whatever happiness I'm searching for, that kind of inclusion and, and vast aspiration is how I think of it as like thinking more than just of myself in a situation. 
the more enriched the experience is because it's like I'm here for a short time. <laughs> I hope that the things that I do, you know, can have a ripple effect uh, in a positive way for so many who are so much younger and will be here longer than me or, you know, and so that's what I uh, focus on to get through hard times personally. The, this, the statement that you're making about we're all creatives, I, I, I think is so powerful because, you know, one of the things with, you know, kind of humanistic approaches to understanding human experience is that you want to remove all of the barriers that get in the way of people being who they are. And I think that one of the biggest barriers that people have is this idea that, well, only certain people can do X, Y, or Z. So if you're, if you're an artist, you can be creative. You know, if you're a musician, you can make music. And, and what you said, I think, is so important. The idea that we've all got that in us at any point in your life, in any situation, you can stop and figure out, well, how can I be creative here? How can I do something artistic in this concept? How can I think outside the box? And there's so much power in that statement because most people limit themselves based on the idea, well, well, I'm not a musician. I'm not an athlete. I'm not an artist. So I can't do those things. I'm just a traditional inside the box person. Let me go about my business. And I feel like what you're saying, it applies to so many people. And I, I hope people get that lesson. Yeah, that's powerful. I mean, I think even... Even being raised in an artist family myself, it still it still was a practice to remember that it was okay to be outside the box and you know and I was so lucky because I had a community in my family that was all making art and was that you know that we were all outside the box in a sense but even still there were times where I wanted to conform like oh but everyone's doing it like that and so I can't imagine what it's like for people who don't even count themselves as creative and you know the trajectory it might take them till they finally land on like wow this is who I really am and it's okay to be me and it turns out I'm a graphic designer or I'm a singer or, you know, and I'm like the world's first atonal singer, <laughs> whatever it is. Like, I always love that idea that we get there, but the more, you know, really what launch left is about what I'm trying to do with that space is kind of create an intentional space so that the creative and the arts can be a topic that, um, is commonplace around transformation and activism and kindness, like a different kind of orientation to the artist community that isn't commerce first, right? It's, it's the, it's the, the things that we all truly enjoy about art, which is how it changes us and makes us feel better. And, and so that's something that I've really been, you know, that's really that the core of what I'm trying to do with, with Launch Left. And, and that goes back to that idea that we're all creative. So how do we awaken that and share it with others? And that, that idea that, that you've talked about is that you want Launch Left to be a light switch for others. And, and that concept of transformation, because a lot of people, even in the business world, talk about the concept of transformational leadership. You know, you want to be that person that inspires people, not because they're afraid of you, you know, not because something bad's going to happen to them. You want by your example and by your passion and by your commitment for something, for a light switch to go off in them say, huh, like that's 
like just being around this person's inspiring me to think that way, you know, to kind of think in a different way. And I love the way that you have uh, not only the profiles, but, but the introductions. So like kind of like a, a, a more established artist introducing a lesser known artist. I feel like that's such a, such a wonderful modeling of how we can all see this as this like ongoing transformational process. Yeah. And, and I thank you for bringing that up because that's such an important part of it. And ultimately I don't really see, I, I, I would prefer to take more and more of a backseat. It just so happens that for, cause for me, this idea is that it's really just creating a space for community of, of artists to share about things that aren't money first, fame first. And when you're in music and art, that's basically your goal. If you're going to survive, you have to become famous or rich, right? Like that's what's told to us in a cultural sense. And so just creating a space where that's not the orientation, it was the first step. And and I've always tried to kind of like, you know, be a part of it, but not be the necessarily the light switch. My hope is that by creating the space that different people will interface with different artists and their lights would be switched because of hearing something that they said, right? Like, so that was always important to me is that it really wasn't like a personality brand for me as much as it was trying to create an intentional space for artists to feel seen, heard, and lifted up by others in their community and also by the audience at large. Like the audience is part of it. It's interactive in a sense. And and we're building more towards that in 2021, but that's always been super important part of it to me is that it's kind of an it is an ecosystem unto itself and and i'm you know a part of it a small part of it <laughs> well and you know you've talked about that concept of making kindness cool which is i i think such an interesting idea because you know let's face it growing up we're not really taught that being kind is cool it's like being kind is being kind and being cool is something very different. In fact, sometimes we think that people who are less kind seem edgier or more self-reliant or more cool, if you will. And I guess, you know, one of the things I'm wondering about is how, how do we help people recognize that the kindness is where it's at? Because nobody likes living in an unkind world, yet we all, whether intentionally or not, sort of can contribute to it. I know I do. I've, I've always wondered what that was about. I mean, I was really blessed to, to be raised with principles based on harmlessness and kindness towards others and all animals. And so that was something that, I mean, we made our parents actually go vegan when I was a kid. Um, So, you know, we, 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 the kids were very, passionate about like if you're saying you're going to be kind to this person then you got to be kind to this animal too it's all the same you know if it's living and breathing and has eyes like think about it in that sense so I feel very blessed to have had that from a young age but I do I've you know I've struggled with that as a musician and artist in that there is seemingly a delineation between cool and kind. Like there is a, they are not equal and the same. And often, you know, being kind and cool just doesn't, it's not as cool. 
right? So how do you, I've always been like, how do we rebrand kind as cool? Like in a way. There's definitely, I don't know if it's toxic masculinity or just toxicity in general. You know, it's, it's almost like this game of hot potato. And I think that this is also what happens sometimes with, with loss or grief or emotional distress is that there's always this kind of game of chicken or hot potato where it's like, okay, like if we all agree that we can all not be okay at times, then we can all just be kind to each other. But it just takes one person to kind of leverage someone else, to bully someone else, to you know push ahead of someone else because of that, or somehow uh, marginalize someone. And now all of a sudden, it's sort of this question of like, well, is my kindness going to make me vulnerable? And I think that one of the things that's, that's, that's great is that people now who are more like well-known, like I think that you're, you know, you're, you're using your, your place in the community and your position of strength in the community to kind of say, hey, here's the way to do it. But I think a lot of people, what they feel like is like, am I strong enough to be kind? Am I strong enough to get away with being kind or am I going to get hurt from being kind? Right. And I think there's something, uh, uh, well, first of all, I'm going to just say that I'm not, I'm not presenting any sort of answer. I'm presenting a question. It's sort of like Socratic method of just trying to ask the question of all of us, like, how do we make kindness cool? Right? Like, so, and that, and my wish, yes, I have an aspiration that somehow we're able to do that, but I have no actual answers, but something that I've noticed a lot around this subject and around exactly what you just brought up, which is a really good point is that part of perhaps, um, a, a misunderstanding we've all been fed or had over is that kindness and, and compassion and, you know, the word love, for example, which has been so polluted in many ways, like around hippy dippiness, right? All these things, these, these markers that they are somehow weak and they are somehow our worst, our, our most wimpish qualities, right? As opposed to that they are the most powerful and that the force, the force of love, the force of compassion, the force of kindness has been proven time and time again. There are historical accounts of how through the process of love, compassion, and fierce kind of loving, nonviolent action, all these things that we've seen through Gandhi and MLK and Mother Teresa and just iconic people that we have witnessed change laws, change countries, have all done, done it by way of love, right? The ferociousness of love, loving to the point where they were willing to die to to do what is right. That kind of courage is at the heart of what love is. And so I always call it more like a militant love or a militant kindness. It's like, against all odds, I will be kind and tough about this love. It's like, a, but it's, and something about that helped change my orientation to it to where now when I think of kindness it's like that's a force that's that's above and beyond being petty or making fun of someone to be cool in a moment or any of those things that we call cool that have been polluted right because there's no reason why cool and kind can't totally coexist and i know a lot of cool people who are really kind so it's i've seen it firsthand that it works but it is this thing off what you said that we have this misperception about 
love, compassion, kindness as being weak, milk toast, and pathetic versus like force and brute. And that's why when I add militant to it, people understand it more because we're so oriented to war, right, in our country and might as being the strongest thing. So if we're going to, if we, if we have to have that orientation, then think about it as militant love, militant kindness, a kind of practice daily at that ferocity of love. Well, and then because that's, you know, look for anybody who's been in a relationship, whether it's, you know, parents, siblings, romantic, you know, with your kids, I mean, so much of the power of someone's life is can you love people through their difficult times? Can you love yourself? When, when, you, when you talk about militant love, can you love yourself? Because you're the only one who knows all of the things that are problematic with you, all the things that are potential weaknesses, all the parts that are the object of shame. And can you still love yourself in a militant way with that? And then can you take that same, that same concept and can you and can you apply it to other people so that people know that you will love them no matter what? It doesn't mean you're going to let them walk all over you. It doesn't mean that you're not going to set boundaries, but you are going to preserve that love. If you can do those two things, I mean, that that's it pretty much. Most of the yeah. problems that we have are, are, are some combination of those two things not happening. True. And uh, I mean, I think that that encapsulates the, the true ferocity of what it means to have and exercise or express militant love, right? It is a practice. So it requires a constant contemplation and unraveling of one's learned self-loathing, learned judgment on others and their like what they're not doing right. All, all of these things that we heap on rea- reality, which is without those things. Reality is a beautiful experience. We just don't know that because we're so busy heaping our opinions and our self-loathing onto ourselves and others. And so for me, it is about constant as as much as possible. And I know I fall short, but even with that, I have compassion because just like me, everyone is struggling with trying to be their best self and, and always be self-reflective and checking their mind and that. But really for me, it's about con- contemplating, you know, and, and allowing like, instead of self-loathing, noticing that each time that I fall off the proverbial wagon of whatever, you know, thing that I really believe in or feel like, ah, oh, but today I just don't feel like doing that or that it's less, that the gap is smaller, that, you know, also within that, apathy or lack of like a moment where I lack the kind of wherewithal to follow through on something that I believe or that I catch myself and going, well, that was a quicker, that that was less time than last time. And so that I can come in so that self-loathing doesn't overtake me. So that self-love is a part of that animal. And that's also a practice, right? It's a contemplative practice that you're constantly, like, I have to be using my mind to combat what I have learned through societal constraints and cultural mores and all of that. And really remember, like, I, I decide what today is and I decide what tomorrow is. I'm creating my, my reality in the way that I see others and myself. So how can I be gentle with myself? How can I be gentle with others? That has helped me 
and and so interesting it doesn't really match again when you say militant love and that but that is to me what what that kind of milit you have to be militant it's a practice because it's so easy just to fall prey to what you, you know the social mores are or how we've like what the signaling of what how you're supposed to be right or at least just do it on paper but not really and so beat yourself up at home but when you go out in the world act like you really care or you know all these things so having to really stay focused on maintaining an authentic self is a constant practice and it requires militant love for oneself and others i, I did you come up with the concept militant love like did you my friend katie and i did we've we i think we even have the domain name we've always been super inspired by this idea that well well uh, bothered by the idea that love gets a bad rap as some sort of like nary fairy hippy dippy thing when in reality we like our heroes have all used the power of and harnessed the power of love to change I mean, Gandhi like marched into the British Empire and said, I'm going to, the Indians are going to take back our country and you're going to help us. And they all laughed at him. And yes, he died for it, but that became the truth. He did that. Do you know what I mean? And it was all with love. Yeah. <laughs> it and it's, like, it's, it's interesting because it, it just occurred to me because I, I, I just realized I, I wore my chic shirt, not intentionally for this conversation, but when you said militant love, it, 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 it made so much sense to me, but I'm realizing that part of it is that earlier on our podcast, we had Nile Rogers of Sheik on, and he Amazing. talked about the love that was associated with the militancy of, of the Black Panther Party. And what he right. was kind of explaining is that like people see this as, you know, it's it's violent and whatever. And I, I'm, I'm not here to get into like a political discussion about it, but for for him at the very least, where it was coming from was a place of love. And if, you know, you have to, you have to remember that like all these things that you're talking about, self-loathing, addiction, depression, anxiety, shame, these, these are not things that just land and then stop. These aren't static concepts. These are processes that exist with us. And they're processes that are playing chess. They're not playing checkers. They're figuring out your addiction is figuring out 12 moves ahead, how to get you to drink, how to get you to use. You know, it's not going to just say to you, oh, hey, you've been sober, like go use. Oh, hey, you've been feeling good about yourself. Why don't you start self-loathing? It's always working. And so if you're going to have militant love, which is a concept I'm, I'm, I'm really getting into more and more, it has to be that same intensity. It has yeah. to be a commitment. It has to be a process. It's, it's never won or lost. And that's where it really comes into contact with that concept that you have of you're never not an artist. You're never not creative. It's always there as a process for you to begin in the same way that loving yourself and loving others is always there. You know, so if you feel like you've, you've, uh, I've done too many bad things or too many mean things, it's like you can still start and people will be receptive to it, you know, maybe not right away. And, and so I, I love what you're saying. And, that, and that's why I, I agree with you. Militant love is not, that's not a paradox that those are things that go together in my, at least in my head. So I don't yeah. know if that's comforting. No, absolutely. And I really, you know, what you were talking about too, this is these concepts of, you know, self-loathing and um, depression and addiction, all very real and concrete. Look, they, they, you know, but at the same time, so much of, of that is conceptual and is a constant repetition in our mind 
of how we're falling short, whether it's like, oh, no, because I have this issue, I can't, you know, I'm always going to stop here. Like, I do think that something about militant love is that it can kick open some doors of and some and and reimagine these concepts you know i'm in no way suggesting that um addiction is not real for people or that you know that the hard won things that are proven to the, i'm just saying that sometimes we spend so much time focusing on what's wrong with us that if we applied militant love to open the doors of what's right with us a lot of those constant like calcification of I'm not good at that. I can't do that. This is my problem would melt away and we would see the forest for the trees more and we would be more available. We'd have more energy to do things that help multitude of people that help our friends and family. And it wouldn't be so all about us. You know, one of the things that we started with this conversation was the idea that kindness is somehow weak. And I'll just, you know, I'll tell you something that I, that I'll say to people is that being kind doesn't mean letting people just walk all over you because the the way that I like try to say it to the people with whom I'm working is you think about the love and be loved, right? So what am I going to do to be loving? What am I going to do to receive love? But if there's something that's happening from somebody else, you know, where they're being unkind or they're, they're somehow being harmful, setting a boundary from the, from the place of, I want this to be a loving relationship. And if this continues to happen, it's going gonna, it's gonna to erode that. And so out of a place of love, I'm going to set a boundary with you, or I'm going to stick up for myself, or I'm going to try to help you. That can come from a place of love. If you always think to yourself, like one of the things I'll say to people is like, what's the distance that you need from someone so that when you see them, you're really feeling that love for them. And I don't mean just necessarily like romantic love, but you're, you're feeling good about them in some way. And for some people, it's like, I can see that person all the time and it just feeds the love. Some people it's like, you know, once a week, once a month. And in some cases it's, it's never unless something changes. And the best thing you can do is just not have the hate, but the place where love can create and kindness can create strength is if you approach that and you look at things like, are these behaviors loving And I want to encourage the ones that are, and I want to, at least within my own realm, create boundaries to stop the behaviors that are not that there's a power that can come from that. And it can still be loving. You don't have to be trampled by people, you know, if you're loving. In fact, I think it's the opposite, you know, because you're protecting both of you. Exactly. A hundred percent. That's so articulate a way to talk about boundaries because I think that's always the first question people have when you talk about kindness and loving and being a conduit, but like, but how do you not get pissed when the person screwed up this thing today? You know, how, how do you not harbor something toward, you know, and I do think that exactly how you articulated it. And I've had that experience. There are some people that unfortunately are not in my life anymore because of repeated things that, and me coming from a place of love for sure and saying, Hey, I'm noticing this repeated thing that I'm not comfortable with. And I don't want, I don't, I don't want to be in relationship that has this keep repeating. So if we want to look at this together, great. 
when you give that person that opportunity and they continue to do that thing, that's when I feel like, okay, I have laid out from a very loving place and now it's not healthy for me anymore. So that is militant love too. Like I love this person so much that I don't want to be in a relationship that is toxic with them. And I've offered an opportunity to discuss it and change it collectively. And if they're, they're incapable of that or just don't wish to do that at this time, I have every right. That's what militant love has the right to do. Remove myself from a situation that is harmful to me while also trying to maintain a kind of loving heart towards that person even though that is still hard you realize like you said the days are important like how much can I handle being around that person or not based on what I experienced and offered and then was rejected or not and how to get out of your own way right not make it like a daily problem yeah. And, and one of the things that I'll definitely say is that like, you know, when you do that and look, sometimes you do have to cut someone out of your life and never let them back in. And that, that does happen. And the best you can do is not cause more harm. You know, if you think about the world from not ca- causing harm to, you know, kind of more extended versions of loving someone and more and deeper ways of loving someone, you're still starting with kindness by not doing harm. And one of the things that, that I definitely encourage people to say is that, look, you know, even in horrible situations, sometimes you never are going to see that person again, but by stopping the harm you in and you, and kind of creating the sense of like, listen, I am here to some degree, but these are the things that you would need to do in order for the, for the love to go beyond the not causing harm anymore. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that, I'll, I'll listen. I'm not going to say it's going to work, but I'll listen. And by stopping the ongoing harm, it makes it that much more likely that that future interaction could happen. And, you know, and that's where we get back to love being a process and an ongoing process. And you never know how people are going to come in and out of your life in different ways. And, you know, don't be afraid to set boundaries and be like, oh, I'm never going to see this person again. You know, maybe, maybe you won't, but You're definitely never going to see them again in a good way if you don't set the boundary to begin with. I'm just so glad that we talked about that piece that I think is always the question that comes up after talking about love, compassion, and um, a wish to be kind as opposed to just cool. Uh, And that is that boundaries are important. And how do you have boundaries and keep them and know that you're not like, we, we don't really, we have, we don't have omniscience. We don't really know what's going on. We have our version of this moment. Right. And uh, with all the cloudiness of trauma and whatever that came before it in our lives, that every time we see something, it looks the same, but it's really just our pasting it's like copy pasting onto every situation, our own woundings, right? So how do we cut through that in those moments? And that's, that's what I've seen the ferocity of militant love do. The, the ferocity of militant love, um, that is, is such a strong take home. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming on. This, this really, I feel like I, I, something clicked in how I think about things, how I want to help people think about things and that, that militant part, like sometimes I'll hear things and I'm like, there's something about the way I'm thinking about it or the way that I'm trying to work with people. It's not. And that militant part is, is so crucial. Um, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. And I know everyone listening is going to uh, get a lot out of that. So thank you so much. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Mike. I'm, I'm going to leave this conversation feeling inspired and imbued with a ferocity of militant love as well. So I appreciate uh, your time and your show. And yeah, thank you for having me on. So there you have it. Rain Phoenix talking about the universality of loss and the concept of militant love. You know, it is so natural for us to fall into anger, hatred, resentment towards ourselves and towards others. And this is especially true as we go out in the world and try to lead a purpose-driven life. Our good intentions can sometimes result in stress and devolve into more negative feelings. Maybe we need to be a bit more intense, extreme, and confrontational, a bit more militant about making sure that we prioritize loving ourselves and others on our journey. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder Island Booman for editing and producing this podcast, and my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you hear on the podcast, subscribe on your favorite app, give us a rating, and write a review. And if you'd like to take the next step and make change in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism therapy and coaching program at hardcorehumanism.com. So get at it, Hardcore Humans. See you next time.